turn back to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, again this morning. We covered much of this chapter last week. Um, I'd like to go back, though, and get a, a look a little bit more at the last three verses of Zechariah, chapter 3. As we said before, that this is indeed uh, a book of great hope. This is a book that uh, many fathers in the past, in the midst of discouragement and in the midst of being cast down, have turned to this book and found uh, great encouragement in it. It is indeed a, a book paralleled to the book of Revelation. Uh, there are a lot of uh, apocalyptic sign uh, pictures in this book, um, it is it is apocalyptic in its approach, and yet it's very practical and ap applicable uh, in its writing to us today. Zechariah three, the main uh, the main thought or the main portion of this vision uh, was the introduction of Joshua the high priest. Uh, and introducing to us that uh, the crowning uh, will not be a crowning of a king anymore, but the crowning of a high priest. The last portion of uh, Zechariah 3 speaks about a branch, a stone, and a fig tree. A branch, a stone, and a fig tree. Uh, and of course, as we've said before, most everything in this book is pointing us directly to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, he said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Uh, the, the entirety, you might could say, has, has, has been well aptly placed, that the history, not only of Israel, but the history of the world, the history of the Old Testament, the history is his story. It is the painting of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. It is the painting of Jesus Christ, the Lord. It is the painting of Jesus Christ, the protector and the guide, not only of Israel, but of his people as a whole. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest. This is Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one dot, in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. The branch that's laid out here in all caps, we covered just briefly uh, last week, is the person of Christ. Now, <clears throat> Within, within this book of Zechariah, and especially within these first uh, 
visions that Zechariah has. You have Joshua who stands up and he holds a position. And then in, in the next couple of chapters, you have a man named Zerubbabel. He'll stand up and he holds a position. They are both men that typify the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though physical things will apply to them, in the presence of Israel, it goes beyond them. That They are not the great man themselves. They are a shadow of the man. Remember the Bible says in that day, a man shall be a shadow of a great rock. You look through the Scriptures and you see that there are multiple men in the Scriptures who are a shadow of a great rock. That Christ is that great rock. Christ is that individual that we find rest under. And especially if you find the shadow of a rock in a weary land. If you're walking through the desert in the heat of the day, one of the best things that you can find is the shadow of a great rock. And when we walk through this world, we walk through this life, we see the disaster that goes on around us, we see the trouble and we see the turmoil that goes on around us, one of the great things that we can find is rest underneath a rock. A rock that protects us from the heat. A rock that protects us from the wind. A rock that protects us from the things of violence and hatred in this world. And that's what a lot of these men are doing here. That's what God's using these men to show you the great comfort and security that is found in Christ the rock. And he says here, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. He's mentioned here in Zechariah 3.8. He's also mentioned in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. The branch, in all capital letters, is mentioned in uh, three other places in the Scriptures, at least three other places. Uh, the first one is found in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. I believe that we covered this passage last, last week, but we will at least read it. We'll move from Isaiah 11.1, 1, and then we'll go to Jeremiah 23. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of the ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the for the meek of the earth. Um, there, there's an outstanding lesson that is taught us here. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him and give him the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now, the problem, the problem that you have with the Bible, anybody have a problem with the Bible? Here's a problem that you have. It's been called the world's greatest hyperlink text. In other words, you read something way over here in Genesis and think nothing of it until you get over here in Matthew or John and say, wait a minute, I read that somewhere else. And then you get over here in Acts and you say, I think I've read that somewhere else. That's over in the Psalms. 
it's like every time you turn around, there's always something here that has reference to somewhere else. And you'll spend the rest of your life searching out and finding hidden treasures in God's Word, and it'll never get old. Here He's giving him the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. And it says here that he shall judge, uh, he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. What did he tell Samuel? What did the Lord tell Samuel when he went to Jesse's house? I want you to go and I want you to anoint the next king over Israel. I've taken the kingdom from Saul. I'm giving it to someone else. He sees the oldest of Jesse's sons. Samuel sees the oldest of Jesse's sons come before him. And he says, surely the anointed of the Lord is here. Oh, look how tall he is. Look how handsome he is. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says, he's not the one. Judge him not by his outward appearance. For the Lord judges not by the outward appearance, but by the heart. This king here, this branch that comes forward, is going to do just that. He's going to look beyond what's on the outside to what's on the inside. Turn with me now to Jeremiah. Let's, let's read a little bit more about this branch. Uh, this branch that shall grow up, this root uh, that shall judge with righteousness. In Jeremiah uh, 20, 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So we've got, we've got the term righteousness attached again to this branch. But also we've got another word now attached to him. He said that in his days uh, Judah shall, shall be saved and Israel shall dwell in safety or dwell safely. Righteousness, safety, all these things attached now to this branch. One more. Uh, Jeremiah 35. Jer uh, Jeremiah 33, excuse me. Jeremiah 33 and verse 15. In those days and at that time. You know, if, if you'll just pause for a second and realize, we keep reading this phrase over and over in that day. In that day, at that time. Doesn't the Lord kind of talk like us a little bit? Not that He's like us, but He speaks to us in a language that we easily understand. There's not a person in here that had had trouble in their life. There's not a person in here who hasn't had problems in their life. If I prayed publicly the way that I pray privately, 
I would probably identify with everybody in here. But not have a friend in the world left when I get done. There's not a single person in here who had had trouble. There's not a single person in here who had had problems. And the one thing that you oftentimes keep telling yourself, it's going to be all right one day. There's coming a day. Matter of fact, we sing that song quite frequently here. Hymn number 39 in the little hymnal. There's coming a day. What are we looking for? One final day when all this is over. Well, in those days and at that time, most often, most often, Lord God is looking forward to one specific day. The day that Christ came the first time. Because He did something in that day and in six hours, none of us could ever do in a lifetime. In six hours on one day, He put away iniquity from us forever. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Um, if you want to see, if you want to see how faulty human beings are, watch a baseball game. If you want to see just how arrogant and proud and ridiculous human beings are, watch an umpire. Stevie Wonder could see that that man was out. Everybody in the stands could see that man was out. Everybody could see that ball was four inches off the plate. It was not a strike, but because of who he is, he gets to call it, and he doesn't get to be argued with. The problem I've always had with this is a baseball player can, can do a lot of things to hurt his team, and he gets punished. An umpire can do something also to hurt your team. He doesn't get punched. He gets to be the final authority. And boy, folks, folks look at this and they just get, they've kind of they've lost their minds a little bit in this day and age. I, people have always kind of yelled at officials. Even when I was a kid, they yelled at them. But it's gotten a little, it's gotten a little worse in our days. I never saw a fight on a baseball field between grown adults, you know, coaches of teams. and I never saw that. I saw a lot of arguing, but I never saw fist swinging. It's not the same world that I grew up in. We look at our court systems, and we see judges out there who are not judging righteously. We see around us them declaring uh, the wicked righteous for a reward. And we think, how long can this possibly last? The good news is, is there is coming a day when we will see one who sits upon a throne and he will judge 
in exact righteousness. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be tricked. He cannot be lied to. He cannot be deceived. He cannot be swayed by crocodile tears. He will judge in righteousness and in true holiness. Here we go again in verse 16. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteous. Jesus Christ came the first time, died upon a cross, was resurrected and went back to heaven to sit upon a throne of glory. Peter tells us this in Acts chapter 2. That when God spoke to David, that I would raise up according to thy loins, thy seed after thee. Peter tells us, this spake the Lord concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it's not something in the future. He's reigning right now. Jesus Christ is reigning as a promise and as a covenant that God made with a man named David. Verse 19, beginning with verse 19 here in Jeremiah 33. Here is an an outstanding passage. Uh, One that really needs to be looked at and examined by a lot of people. Um, We want to pause right here and just just say um, there's a lot of false teaching going on in the world around us. Uh, Men like Paul Washer who want to tell people, you really think you're saved, but you're probably not. You think you're a child of God, but unless you really, really, really made the Lord the Lord of your life, you're probably going to hell. There's a problem with that. The biggest problem I have with that is Paul does not have insight into the Lamb's book of life. You can put any kind of requirement on human beings that you want. You can lay them out with burdens. You can load them down with care. But there's something people always forget. It is God that made the choice. Not mankind. God made a covenant and He made a promise. And God is not a liar like men are. God does not change His mind uh, like men do. I'd like you to notice something here. There are people that tell you that you can be lost and saved six times a day. If you don't repent of every sin you've ever done, you'll be lost at the end of the world. There's a multitude of things that you can do to break this covenant that God has made. I'd like you to notice here that the covenant that God made with David was not two-sided. God did not tell David, if you'll do this, I'll raise up seed after you. But if you do something different, I'm going to do something. He never said that. He just told David, this is what I'm going to do. So this covenant is already one-sided to start with. The fulfilling of it and the breaking of it belongs with only one person. Well, let's notice this here. Verse 20. 
Thus saith the Lord. If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. If you as a human being can stop the sun from shining, if you as a human being can stop the world from uh, in its orbit, from spending day and night a 24-hour period, then you can break down the covenant of God. But as far as I know, there's only one person in Scripture who ever made the sun stand still. And it wasn't a human being who made the sun stand still. It was a human being, Joshua, the great army Joshua, who said to the Lord, give me more daylight that I'll whoop this army, and God made the sun stand still. But it wasn't Joshua that did it, it was God who did it. There's only one person who can break this covenant. That person is not David and that person is not Solomon. That person who can break this covenant is not you. It's the Lord God Almighty. And He's not going to go back on His Word. He is sending forth this branch of righteousness. This great, mighty branch that will reign and rule in righteousness. A promised covenant that cannot and will not be broken. Then he says to uh, then he says to Zechariah, turn back to Zechariah 3 now. 3 verse 9, he says, For behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. What did we say about this? The only way that you can engrave a stone is with a hammer and a chisel. And the only way that Christ was engraved was with hammer and chisel when He was nailed to the cross. This term stone goes all the way through the Scriptures. He says, Behold the stone that I have laid for Joshua. In uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Um, I, I, hesitate, I, I backed off of, of going through chapter 4 today. Because like we said earlier, there's so much here that applies to there. There's so much of this that applies to that. But we will, we will address this one issue. He says here in Zechariah 4 and verse 7, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. There is something in front of Zerubbabel that seems to be an insurmountable task. There is a mountain in front of him. Any of y'all have this problem? Any of y'all have a great mountain in front of you that you cannot climb? It seems to be too great for you to overcome. Remember that Jesus said in uh, Matthew 21, 21, if you had faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be you removed. And I've often wondered, 
Really, is, is he talking about us moving physical mountains in this world? No. Mountains in the scriptures are oftentimes referring to kingdoms and nations. So there's a kingdom and nation that's opposing Israel at that day. Their greatest threat was Babylon. There are great kingdoms and nations that oppose us now. Not the United States, but the church of God. And the encouragement to the people of God is, this mountain that opposes you, this mountain that is in front of you, is nothing. It would be brought low and made a plain by the greatest Zerubbabel, the Lord Jesus Christ. This mountain shall be brought down. Um, and they shall bring forth the headstone. The headstone is uh, sort of like the capstone. The final building block. Make an archway, put one right in the middle. The final building block of what is being built. The Bible uses this reference a lot of times. Cornerstones, where you start from. Headstones, where you end up. But all these building blocks here are brought forth. And I'd like to show you something here. In uh, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 and verse 20. Well, let's see. Let's back up. Verse 21. Psalm 118, verse 21. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So we, we see the reference here, right? The, the stone that the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. What is he talking about? Well, don't you remember? It is, it is indeed Matthew 21 and verse 42. So I'm going to keep my finger here in, in Psalm 118, and I'm going to turn over here real quick. I think, to Matthew 21. Some of you with your telephones have done beat me to it. But that's all right. At least we're all on the same page. Matthew 21 and verse 42. Verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy these wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits of their season. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him powder. Um. Oh, there's there's a heap of stuff in in this in this passage. But but we're making we're making a connection, right? Psalm one eighteen, the stone which the builders rejected, same as become the head in the corner. This is the Lord's doing. 
marvelous in our eyes. We're talking about the first coming of Christ, right? And here he says, it's a warning to the nation of Israel that's not bringing forth proper fruit. I'm taking the kingdom from you and I'm giving it to someone else. Now, here's a particular phrase that ought to be interesting to us as disciples of Christ. He says to us that whosoever shall fall upon this stone or upon this rock shall be broken. But whosoever this stone falls upon shall be ground to powder. It is better for you as a disciple to come to Christ in repentance and confess your, confess your sins and be broken in spirit. Remember David says that in Psalm 53, a broken and contrite heart is in the sight of God of great favor. The last thing that you and I need to be is so rebellious that God Himself falls on you. And takes everything you ever had. Have you ever met that person who was just so strung out, so rebellious, so headstrong, they would not listen to anyone? And it takes the disciplined hand of God to absolutely grind them. You're not talking about going to hell here. Jonah was a man who didn't fall upon the Lord for his spirit to be broken, for his pride to be broken. He's one whom the Lord fell upon him. And by the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah is more bitter in the end than when he started. Did you ever notice that? There's really, the Bible doesn't tell us how Jonah ends up. It just sort of leaves us hanging with this crotchety old crusty uh, rebellious prophet who refuses to see things God's way. Don't know anybody like that, do you? Turning back, Psalm 118. I think we've established that, that this, this stone the builders rejected it's the first coming of Christ. What does the Bible say now? Verse 24 of Psalm 118. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Somebody wakes up on Wednesday morning. <clears throat> it's the first thing out of their mouth. Oh, this is the day the Lord hath made. Wake up on Friday. Thank God it's Friday. This is the day that the Lord hath made. That's not what this text means. This text is not necessarily being thankful for every day you live, even though you should be thankful for every day you live. This text is being thankful for the day that Christ came the first time. This is the day that the Lord hath made. It is marvelous in our eyes. It was not marvelous in the eyes of the world. It was not marvelous in the eyes of the, of the Pharisees. But you and I have... The Old Testament coupled with the New Testament to realize that the Lord says in that day will I put away the iniquity of the land in one day. That day is marvelous in the eyes of a sinner who feels himself to be sinful and, and unworthy of the least of God's mercies. 
you know, the Apostle, uh, Apostle Paul spoke in Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking concerning the establishment of the church and the establishments uh, of the apostles and the prophets and so forth and so on, he says here in Ephesians 2 and verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief Cornerstone. There's a lot of wickedness going on in this world. There's a lot of things in this world that worldly people are confused about. There are a lot of solutions that the world is looking for, but they're not looking for them in Jesus Christ. They're looking for them somewhere else. They're constantly trying to figure out what makes men wicked. Is it their upbringing? Is it the problem they live over here in the ghetto instead of the getmo? Is it the nature or their nurture? Did their parents make them this way? Well, their parents did make them this way. Adam and Eve, their first parents, made all of us this way. Wickedness is not something that is developed in you. Wickedness is something you're born with. Now, your wickedness may manifest itself in a way different from my wickedness. But the solution is always the same. Jesus Christ is the answer. And that's kind of what we're introduced to in Zechariah 4. That's what, you know, we kind of move into that. And he introduces us to this, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You can yell at somebody till you're blue in the face, but until they hear it from the words of Christ himself, you're casting your pearls before the swine, right? Um, Daniel chapter 3. I've got to get to this one because I... I keep skipping it ever so often. Um, But you remember when uh, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream in Daniel 3 of this uh, great and golden statue. Head of gold, arms and silver, uh, arms and chest of silver, belly of brass, and and the feet of uh, miry clay, mingled iron. Remember this statue that we've discussed so many times? Daniel chapter 3. What brings down this great and mighty statue? What brings down this great and mighty statue is a stone that was hewn out of the rock. This is Daniel 3, verse 35. It says here, well, verse 34, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshings. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. It, it sure sounds like what we read in Matthew, doesn't it? 
that this rock fell upon all them and ground them all to powder, and then they got blown away. See, here's another instance of this applies. See, I wasn't even thinking about that till just right now. I, honest to God, I was not even thinking about that till right now. Here's another instance where something applies to something else. I didn't think it meant anything. Oh, how foolish am I to think those things in the Bible that don't mean anything don't mean anything. It's in there for a reason. And the stone, let's back to the back of the book now, and the stone smote the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Oh my. Isn't that interesting? This stone that was cut out of the rock without hands. That is so important right here. This is more than the gospel church. This is the person of Christ. He came into this world not made with hands. That which was fashioned in her womb was of the Holy Ghost. Nobody attributed to his existence here. Nobody put him here. The Holy Ghost is the one that born her, born him here in her. Even though if you wanted to make this stone the church, the church is not founded on men. The church is put here by God. It is He Himself. As Paul says, I am that I am by the grace of God. This stone comes forth and it, it fills the whole earth and becomes a great mountain. In Isaiah chapter 2, there is an outstanding illustration of this. This stone in Daniel 3 that was carved out of the rock What did I say? Okay. This stone in Daniel 3 that became a great mountain. Let's notice Isaiah chapter 2. Is that what I want to say? We're fixing to find out. Let's all be surprised together. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Here's a mountain. And the top of it shall be the Lord's house. It's not only told us here in Isaiah 2, but it's also repeated almost word for word in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Notice what you've got here. <clears throat> the Lord's house is established in the top of the mountains. We kind of get that image in our head, right? In the top of the mountain, here's the Lord's house. What's so important about this? All nations shall flow unto it. When was the last time you saw water flow uphill? It doesn't flow uphill, does it? Anything that flows uphill flows against nature. So the nations here, and in Micah it says, people shall 
flow unto it. People and nations that flow towards God here are flowing against nature. You are here today doing something that is against your human nature. When you seek God in spirit and in truth, you're doing something that's against your human nature. A second nature has been put in you by the Holy Spirit. And God essentially seeks Himself through you, through His Spirit. What you and I have didn't come of us. We have no room to stand before God and say, look what I have done. I am that I am by the grace of God. I have the opportunity to be in His house by His grace. I have the opportunity to understand the words of this book by His grace. I have the privilege to worship Him by His grace. And He says here in Zechariah 3, verse 10, that in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. In that day, you shall call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. In 1 Kings chapter 4, there is a reference to this saying. First Kings chapter 4, and I'd like to read verse, I believe it's 24. First Kings 4, verse 24. For he had dominion. This is speaking about Solomon. Solomon had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tipshah even to Azoth. Over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace. On all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Wait a minute. Didn't we read about that? We pointed that out way early on, didn't we? In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33. There was something about this righteous branch that comes forth that's going to also bring safety to the people of God. Wait a minute. Zechariah is reminding us there is coming a great time where dwelling under the vine and under the fig tree is going to mean something. Not only is it here, uh, I quoted briefly Micah chapter 4 a while ago. You can turn over there if you so choose to read that. Uh, but when you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1, find something. Zechariah said there's coming a time when every man shall dwell under the vine and under the fig tree. In John chapter 1, verse 45, it says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. 
Maybe we complicate things too much in our life. When you invite people to church and they say, well, what do you have? Or what's the difference between Primitive Baptist and all others? And we'll oftentimes start, well, we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have this, we don't have that. Well, what do you have? Maybe we complicate things sometimes. Maybe we should just say to folks, come and see. Come and see. And in another passage, he says, come see and go tell. Just come and see what we got. Come and see what we've met. Come and see this man that we have found. And verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Oh, what an outstanding question. What an outstanding question that Nathaniel would say to the Lord, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said unto him, before that Philip called thee, and thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Uh, there's lots of opinions about this that you read from commentators. What was the purpose of these fig trees? Well, we do know that I read to you earlier from 1 Kings that they dwelt under the vine and under the fig tree because Solomon, the great king of righteousness, reigned at that time and they, reigned, and they, and they, they lived in peace and safety. So it was a time of great peacefulness and a time of great safety. We also know from other writers that a lot of the Jewish rabbis would meet under fig trees and they would teach the scriptures to the people. So Jesus says unto Nathanael, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. We do know that Paul tells us that in the last days, when the world shall say peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction. So we do know, if we pause and think about that, that the world is going to convince themselves that they are in peace and safety when suddenly destruction is going to come upon them. So for example... Uh, if we could just get rid of all guns, we'd get rid of all evil, and we'd all live peacefully and safe. <laughs> yeah. And a Christian in the world ought to believe that. If you ever read anything in the Bible, you ought not to believe that statement. Anytime a government has full control, you in trouble. So Nathaniel's under the fig tree. He's under a place of peace and safety. He's under place being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. There was, there's other speculation from some of the other rabbis that maybe this has reference to the time uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, excuse me, that Herod sent out his decree that all the children should be killed. And his mother hid him under a fig tree to protect his life. Whatever his situation was being under this fig tree, Jesus knew about it. And when he revealed unto him, I saw thee, it made a mark in his life. It was evidently something that was so important and so significant to Nathaniel for Jesus to say, I saw thee there. Perhaps nobody else did. Perhaps nobody else cared. 
There's also the thought, if you read the rest of this chapter, notice verse, verse 51. He saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, now, what does that sound like? That sounds like Jacob's dream, doesn't it? Way back in Genesis, when Jacob laid down and he sees this ladder and angels coming down and going up on this ladder, and he awoke the next morning, and what did Jacob say? He said, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. Jesus is telling Nathaniel, the Lord is in this place. Perhaps Nathaniel was under the fig tree reading that particular passage and knew not what it meant. And here comes the Lord says, I saw thee under the fig tree. Not only did I see thee under the fig tree, but I knew what you were thinking. Ooh. Now, isn't that a terrifying fright? That the Lord says, I not only saw you, but I knew what you were thinking. I see y'all. Don't know what you're thinking. So just keep smiling so that I think you're happy. We'll be done with this in another hour and a half. I promise. Whatever the proper understanding of this, this is a pretty phenomenal passage though. And here's a great promise from Zechariah. That in that day, every man shall dwell and shall call his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So then here is a question in Matthew 21. Here's a question to us in Matthew 21 as Jesus is walking about with his disciples. It says in verse 19 that he, Matthew 21 verse 19, when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be. He's coming along now. He's he's cursing this fig tree. I don't think it's coincidence that as Jesus is is having his earthly ministry here, that he curses the very thing that Adam used in the garden to cover his nakedness. I don't think that's a coincidence because if you look at it from the things that we've already talked about. Human beings will look for peace and safety in anything except Christ. They will build their house on anything except Jesus Christ, the foundation rock. And if those scribes and Pharisees did in fact use this place to teach people, it is a dangerous thing to teach without knowledge. You remember when Job said, if I could find the Lord, I'd argue my cause before Him, I'd order my case before Him, and I'd tell Him why, I, why I've been so wronged in life. And God looked at him and said, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? 
There are multitudes of people teaching in the world today without knowledge. Our children are being turned out as little socialist activists out of colleges nowadays. They're being told, for example, white people are inherently racist because they're white. And black people are just kept down by the man and there's not really anything they can do about it because they're black. One of the dumbest things I've ever heard. But they're grilling it in our kids. They are teaching them without knowledge. Introducing sex education to first, second, and third graders is not wrong. It is evil. Teaching people there are hundreds of genders out there. It's not wrong. It's evil. It's ridiculous. And these Pharisees oftentimes are teaching people really without knowledge. And this, this kind of... I didn't, I, this is another one of those instances where this applies to that. Because in John chapter 3, the Lord speaks to Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to him, the Lord starts telling him about the new birth. And he starts telling him the wind blows where it listeth. Thou canst hear the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh, nor whither it goest. And, and Nicodemus questions, he said, how can I be born again? Shall I go into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says unto him, how, you're a teacher in Israel, and how don't you, why don't you understand this? You're a teacher, and you don't understand this. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And there's just a heap of teaching that goes into that. But here's what Jesus is saying to him. You're a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand this. Why are you a teacher then? Remember that Ethiopian eunuch there in the book of Acts uh, Acts 8? is riding back on his chariot and Philip joins himself and says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he says, How can I accept some man guide me? He's reading Isaiah 53 and he says, Is he, is he talking about himself or somebody else? Well, where's this eunuch coming from? He's coming from Jerusalem. He'd been there for the Passover. Why didn't you ask one of the Pharisees, one of the scribes, one of the religious leaders? They didn't understand because Christ was the key that unlocked the entire Old Testament. And they crucified Him. So when you try and finish the puzzle and you throw the main piece away, it's never going to be complete. Let me, let me read to you what John Gill says about Jesus cursing the fig tree here in Matthew 21. You know, here comes Jesus and He sees this large, lavish fig tree. You would expect if you see this fig tree in full bloom, there'd be some fruit on it, right? Speaking to the Jewish nation, this tree is an emblem of the Jewish nation in Jesus' day. On account of their large profession of religion and great pretensions to holiness and the many advantages that they enjoyed, humanly speaking, much fruit of righteousness might have been expected. And, and that's what he writes. Paul said in Romans 3, he says, what advantage hath the Jew? He says, much every way. For under them were committed the oracles of God. An oracle is not just a writing, but it's also a speaker. They had the Word of God and they had the teachers of God. The Jews had a great advantage over all the other nations. 
but they did not use it properly. But alas, he goes on to say, he found nothing but mere words, empty boasts, an outward show of religion, an external profession, and a bare performance of trifling ceremonies and oral traditions. Wherefore, wherefore Christ rejected them, and in a little time after, the kingdom of God, the gospel, was taken from them, and their temple, city, and nation entirely destroyed. He took everything from them that they trusted in. Symbolized in the cursing of this fig tree. I don't like where we are in America today. Rising gas prices, rising food prices, bare shelves. But I do have to ask myself, have we trusted too much in human means to make ends meet in America? Those people that used to mock grandma who would can things and fill a pantry full of food, are we mocking grandma now? Uh, those people who, who would mock a stay-at-home wife and say, you're not living to your full potential, who used to could sew her own clothes, you're not mocking them now, are you? If you are, you've never tried to find clothes for a six-foot-two boy that weighs 120 pounds. Love you, son. Um, we have trusted too long, even in America, for the wrong people to deliver us in times of trouble. We have. Uh, churches in America have looked far too long at the wrong things to deliver us from falling away. When I was a small child, the vacation Bible school bus would come through the neighborhood. And I always ask my dad, hey, can I go? No, you don't need to go. Why not? Because I said, I learn now what he mean by that. That they're always looking for a gimmick. They're always looking for something to save the church. Friends, the only thing that's ever going to save the church is the Spirit of God. Look, we can meet every Sunday. We can meet once a month. We can meet twice a month. We can meet seven days a week. But if we're just here going through the motions, that's not going to save us. That's not going to deliver us. That's not going to make us prosperous. That's not going to make us grow. The Spirit of God blessing us is going to make us grow. Now, can we hinder the Spirit? Yes. Can we grieve the Spirit? Yes. Why should God bless us if we're just going to take His blessing and give it to somebody else? Or God, why should God give us energy if we're just going to take that energy and use it for something slothful? That's a question we have to ask ourselves all the time. But toys of the world aren't going to deliver us. Things of the world aren't going to deliver us. That's why Zechariah moves into chapter 4 and he says the most important thing that Israel needs, the most important thing that the church needs is not might, is not power. It's the Spirit of the living God. And if He will bless us, then we shall indeed be blessed. Thank you for your gift.